Ever since the Enlightenment, God and science have been kept in separate compartments, and a lot of scientists will tell you that God doesn't even exist, let alone matter, which is, of course, the way it should be. Or is it? Today on Uncommon Knowledge, Dr. Stephen Meyer on his new book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A graduate of Whitworth College, the author Stephen Meyer holds a doctorate in the history and philosophy of science from Cambridge. In 2009, Dr. Meyer published Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. Of Signature in the Cell, the philosopher Thomas Nagel of NYU wrote that, quote, anyone who believes God never intervenes in the natural world will be instructed by Mayer's careful presentation of this fiendishly difficult problem, close quote. In 2013, Dr. Meyer published Darwin's Doubt, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. Of Darwin's Doubt, David Galertner of Yale, one of the founders of the discipline of computer science wrote, quote, Stephen Meyer's thoughtful and meticulous book convinced me that Darwin has failed, close quote. Dr. Meyer now directs the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. His newest book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Stephen Meyer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Peter. Um, Steve, a couple of preliminary questions. What is the God Hypothesis? Well, the God Hypothesis is the idea that the postulation of the existence of God provides explanatory power with respect to observations we can make about the natural world. And in the book, I argue that, it are, that the God hypothesis provides superior explanatory power uh, over and against other competing metaphysical hypotheses or worldviews, whether, they be de whether it be deism or materialism or pantheism or some other things that I consider in the book as well. Another preliminary sort of question here is, biologist Richard Dawkins, quote, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, close quote. Mistaken, but you can sort of see his point or demonstrably mistaken? Well, mistaken, but beautifully for, framed. This is, in a sense, the, the, the money quotation that I use in the book to frame the argument, because what's implicit in, Dar in Dawkins's quotation is that a metaphysical hypothesis, what he means by blind, pitiless indifference is, after all, the philosophy of scientific materialism, uh, that metaphysical hypotheses are every bit as testable in their own way as scientific ones. We can judge the merits of a metaphysical hypothesis, of a worldview, by uh, looking at the world around us to see if it matches the expectations, what we think should follow if that hypothesis were true. Dawkins says that the universe we observe has exactly the properties we should expect if scientific materialism is true. Scientific materialism being that worldview that affirms that matter and energy are the thing from which everything else comes and that matter and energy are eternal and self-existent and required no prior creator or creation. And in the book, I 
appreciate Dawkins for framing the argument that way, but then take him head on and ask the question, is that true or not? And argue that, that in fact, the, the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there, is, if there was intelligent design built into the universe and indeed intelligent design that has a theistic source. So the subtitle is three discoveries, three scientific discoveries that effectively have changed everything. But before we get to those three discoveries, you spend a portion of your time at the beginning of the book elucidating the old or the original relationship between science and theology, theology here in the Judeo-Christian view of theology. And I'd like to take a moment or two to go through these points because frankly, because I found them so striking. This is not what one hears in the usual debates. You quote the historian of science, Ian Barber, quote, science in any modern form arose in Western civilization alone. Well, that's politically incorrect. That's a dangerous assertion right there. Science in its modern form arose in Western civilization alone among all the cultures of the world because only the Christian West possessed the necessary intellectual presuppositions, close quote. So let's take the first and outrageous suggestion that science arose in the West. What about the advanced aspects of Chinese civilization, mathematics, architecture, and so forth? They've had those for at least a few millennia, depending on how you count, before the West did, or the Islamic civilization, which reached a, a high point in in reading and interpreting classical texts, working out and mathematics, algebra, myth. all of that while we were in, while the West was in its dark ages. What about all that? Well, this is uh, maybe a controversial point in the current climate, but almost all historians of science have uh, observed the same thing, that, that, that modern science in a sense of a systematic method for interrogating and investigating nature arose uniquely in a Judeo-Christian milieu in Western Europe, roughly between 1300 and 1750, with a particular focus on the period of time from 1500 to 1750, um, often called the scientific revolution. Um, it is absolutely true that there have been many advanced civilizations. The Chinese invented gunpowder. They had advanced forms of uh, military uh, weaponry. They organized cities and city-states. The, the, the Romans built roads and aqueducts and, and so forth. Uh, and, but this actually highlights what was unique in the West. The material conditions of doing science were present in many cultures. But somehow this systematic way of investigating nature involving the isolation of variables, various scientific methods, um, and, and then the mathematization of the descriptions of nature, uh, this didn't happen everywhere. It only happened in the, in the Judeo-Christian West, and it only happened during a particular period of time. And so it's raised this question that historian, in the way historians of science opposed it is, why there, why then? What was the difference? What was the variable? What was the difference that made the difference? And they have found that difference in the realm of ideas. So well, let's go back to Barbara's phrase, intellectual presuppositions. Presupposition one, the contingency of nature from your book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, in 1277, this says something about the sweep of your book right there. In 1277, Etienne Tompier, the Bishop of Paris, writing with the support of Pope John XXI, condemned Necessarian theology and 219 separate theses influenced by Greek philosophy about what God could or couldn't 
do, close quote. Now that's a mouthful and it seems just unbelievably abstruse. What on earth has that got to do with the scientific method? Let's, let's unpack that because it's actually fairly clear. The Greeks always are the great histories of the Western intellectual tradition and so they should be. They gave us philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, but Greek science was impeded by assumptions that the Greeks made about the nature of nature. They assumed that built into nature was a kind of intrinsic logic that uh, they characterized as the logos. And so they also assumed that the order that they in nature was governed by this logic so that whatever seemed most logical to us was also what was built into nature, was, was logic, it was the logical form of the order in nature. So what's the most logical and perfect form of, of motion? It's a circle. So how do the planets uh, go, you know, how, what, what are planetary orbits? What kind of shape do they have? It must be circular. And there were numerous um, logically deduced um, conclusions about nature that were not empirically grounded. What's so his, so the, Greek, the Greeks worked things out in theory and assumed that they worked that way in practice. Exactly, exactly. So they did a lot of armchair philosophizing about nature. It wasn't that they weren't interested in nature, or they didn't assume that there was an order there, but they assumed it was an order that had to be a certain way, the way that appeared most logical to them. Okay, and now uh, again from the return of the God hypothesis, because God himself because God himself possesses a certain free will, a certain freedom, quote, quoting you, the order in nature could have been otherwise. The job of the natural philosopher, the old term for scientists, the job of the natural philosopher was not to ask what God must have done, but what God actually did, close quote. And, that's and that intellectual a, yeah. presupposition is unique to the West. Yes, because and the idea is that, yes, there's an order in nature, but it's an order that's impressed upon nature or engraved upon nature from the outside. Because, God, because there was a creator who, who chose the form of order that would be manifest in creation, we have to go and look and see which form it is. When I was teaching, I used to use the example of paintbrushes with my students, show them all the different kinds of paintbrushes that a painter could use. All of them manifest a, a form, function, relationship, a kind of order, orderliness, but the painter could choose which one he or she wants to use for the particular application in mind. In the same way, God, could, uh, in, in providing, for example, the law of gravity, could have chosen to had a gravitational attraction much, much stronger or weaker. It has an inverse square law in Newton's formulation, but it might've been an inverse cube law. It might not have had an exponent in the, de, in, the, in the denominator at all. It could have been entirely different. There's an order, but which order is up for us to go and to, to discover? And that quote that you just attributed to me is almost a direct paraphrase of Robert Boyle, who said that the job of the natural the philosopher chemist. is not, not to look at what God must have done, not to, not to decide what God must have done, but to go and look and to see what he actually did do. So it that was unique. the shift. Yeah. The, the following question would only occur in the West. And that question is, hmm, this is interesting. Let's see what the big guy actually did here. Mm -hmm. This gives rise to the Western emphasis on actual observation. The go look. Go look and see. Go look and see. It becomes an empirical right. science rather than a deductive or philosophical approach to, to studying nature. Presupposition two, the intelligibility of nature. Again, I'm quoting from the return of the God hypothesis. Modern science was inspired by the conviction that the universe is the product of a rational mind who designed it to be understood 
and who designed the human mind to understand it. You go on to quote the 17th century astronomer Johannes Kepler, quote, God created us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts, close quote. Now that seems to me almost to merge, to be stepping a step or two in the direction of a kind of feel-good 21st century psychobabble view of Western theology, but 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 it's not. And yet, and yet it was a, a crucial idea because it's actually very hard to discover the order of nature. It's not an easy thing to conduct experiments. You, there has to be an instinctive confidence that there is a secret there in nature to be revealed, to motivate people to do the hard work of investigating or interrogating nature. And this, this conviction that nature had an intelligible order that was the product of the rational mind of the creator, the same creator who made our minds and had endowed our minds with a rationality that enabled us to understand the rationality and the design and the order built into nature. So that's what gave us confidence. Or that's what the, gave theology us confidence. That the, the theology that human beings are distinctive that we alone, this notion about being made in God's image, in one way or another, not dogs or cats or fish or any, but human beings can understand, can grab, that's vital here. We've correct? been made this, yeah, it was the Judeo-Christian idea that we've been made the stewards This is, this is also politically yeah. incorrect, of course. Yeah, right, not of long, course. One, um, one long continuum from, from, single, from amoeba to human beings. Human beings are different. Well, I, I thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. No, it's absolutely human exceptionalism, if you if you will. That there's something unique about the the intellectual and cognitive cap capabilities of human beings that allow them uniquely to understand the design and the order and the rationality built into the natural world. Okay, so intellectual presupposition number three, and this is three of three, so it's the last one: human fallibility. On the one hand, human beings are created in the image of God so they can understand. On the other hand, to quote you, uh, you, you note the Christian doctrine of original sin, humans are vulnerable to self-deception, flights of fancy, and jumping to conclusions. Scientists must therefore employ systematic experimental methods, close quote. Explain that. Uh, this is an idea that's been emphasized by the historian and philosopher of science Steve Fuller uh, in Britain and uh, Peter Harrison in, the, in Australia, that the doctrine of original sin, which was recovered in the same period when uh, in late medieval Catholic theology and during the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of creation was being reemphasized. With that came also the doctrine of the fall of, of human beings, and therefore the idea that we were, that that fall affected our cognitive capabilities. We were capable of understanding the rationality and design of nature, but we were also capable of flights of fancy, of deceiving ourselves, of self-deception, and therefore it was necessary to test our theories against nature. And this again, gave an impetus to observation. We could think of all kinds of different ways that nature might be. It was important to find out what nature actually was like in its, in its reality. And to do that, methods of testing were developed. And so when we think of, of testability as a crucial aspect of scientific investigation, this is part of where it came from. All right, so, so we've got this notion that, there, that nature is contingent, it could have been different. And the only way to figure out what it is, is to observe it. 
that humans being human, they can actually get someplace, they can understand, but humans being human, they'd better double check those observations. That's why we have peer-reviewed journals, That's roughly right. speaking. We, yes, exactly. These are uh, systems of accountability that are built in to check our own uh, capacity for either self-deception or, or simply missing things. Okay. So what I find so striking here is, I mean, I, I'm used to the idea, I'm used to books and arguments where science has its realm, religion has its realm, but you make a much stronger argument that science as we understand it arose from a distinctively Judeo-Christian worldview. And that, uh, well, so the next question is, what happened? Uh, we've already quoted Kepler, God created us after his own image. Newton is explicitly and unashamedly, in fact, unselfconsciously a believer. He writes effectively, how did God do this? What was going on here? How do we test this? But it's, he assumes some, we could argue about exactly what, what the, what the characteristics of his God are, but there is an omniscient uh, that he assumes. Omniscient he makes God. all those same presuppositions that we just discussed, but then he also sees in the scientific realm that he's investigating, in the realm of nature that he's investigating, evidence for design. So in the general scolium to the Principia, the theological epilogue that he writes to his great masterpiece on, on gravitation, he makes a design argument about the initial condition fine-tuning, the setup job that was required to create stable planetary orbits. And at the in this memorable passage, he says, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Now, this is written in one of the greatest works of physics ever written. Uh, and yet there is a, 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 a theological deep theological reflection, a design argument, in these, which is a form of natural theology, but he also brings to bear a theology of nature. That is to say, he's bringing theological presuppositions to bear in the whole framing of the inquiry. All right. And then it all falls apart. The return of the God hypothesis. The success of new scientific theories in the 18th century, you begin there, about astronomical, geological, and biological origins contributed to the rejection of theism as an explanatory framework. Explain that. They, they feel they no longer need a God to explain phenomena that they observe in nature, uh, uh, no longer useful, or they must reject God. What, what, explain well, that. Well, it, it becomes a little of both. And the, the shift starts with Enlightenment philosophy in the 18th century. And then the, many of the theories, especially theories about origins, scientific theories in the 19th century. I tell the story of Pierre Laplace in the book, who is summoned to receive commendation before the French emperor Napoleon for his great work, The Celestial Mechanics. He attempts to do precisely what Newton said could not be done. Newton thought that the laws of nature were a mode of divine action, but he also thought the laws, given that they produced very... Um, predictable regularities could not explain the origin of the very precise and specified initial conditions that made the solar system stable in the first place. And that required an initial act of design or creation that could not be explained as the result of a regularity or a law. Uh, Laplace came along and attempted to explain the origin of the solar system without such initial acts of design. And then there were other kind, there were other theories in geology and, of course, in biology with the origin of species and, and uh, Charles Darwin and the way his ideas were extended to explain both the origin of human beings in his book, Descent of Man, 
and to explain even the first life by other early evolutionary biologists in the late 19th century. So the, by the end of the 19th century, you had this kind of seamless materialistic narrative about how where everything had come from, from the origin of the solar system to the great geological features on earth, to the origin of the first life and subsequent forms of life without any reference to a designing intelligence or a creator of any kind. And that combination of, 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 of theories gave rise to a larger kind of worldview known as to scholars as scientific materialism. And there were other, other thinkers in that era uh, Freud, Marx, Huxley, who contributed to this grand materialistic synthesis by the end of the 19th century. You write Darwin, Marx, Freud, Huxley, quote, science seemed to answer many of the deepest worldview questions that heretofore Judeo-Christian religion had answered. Science no longer needed to invoke a pre-existent mind to explain the evidence of nature, close quote. Okay, so this is, I just want to say for our viewers there's a lot in your book it's over 400 pages of close argument and we're just getting started we can't i can't begin to do justice to the book in a in video just can't do it so one of the many pleasures of this book is this historical tour de force um before you get to the three scientific discoveries which we will get to in just a moment you you give us about five centuries of history of science all right, which brings us to the present. We've already quoted Richard Dawkins, biologist. Here's David Barash, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, of the University of Washington. He wrote a piece in the New York Times about the talk he gives to his students each year. Quote, as evolutionary science has progressed, the available space for religious belief has narrowed, close quote. Now that's a little bit different from saying science no longer needed to resort to an omnipresent, omni-all-knowing first mover. Now it's saying that as science progresses, it squeezes out any legitimate possibility of religious belief, correct? That's not only the opinion of Barash and many of the so-called new atheist writers, but public opinion polling uh, data show that it's increasingly the opinion of many young people. We have this phenomenon that uh, the pollsters are picking up. They call it the rise of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated agnostic and atheists, uh, atheistic young people between 18 and 33 in that kind of age cohort. And when you probe deeply with that group of young people, you find that science has played an outsized role in uh, cementing that disaffection with religion. Um, and with belief in God. In fact, two thirds of the young atheists surveyed in one poll said, uh, quote, affirm the following statement, uh, the discoveries of science make belief in God less probable. And so that's, the, so this is the kind of direction that we've been going in the popular culture. And the argument of the book is that uh, this, this move towards agnosticism and atheism is unnecessary especially if it claims to be grounded in science, because the scientific evidence is actually pointing in the opposite direction. Okay, which brings us to the first of these three great scientific discoveries, the origin of the universe. The Big Bang. I quote you, advances in astronomy and cosmology have established that the material universe had a definite beginning in time and space, suggesting a cause beyond the physical or material universe. 
Now it's possible to stop right there and just spend an afternoon thinking about that. <laughs> but the universe began. This is, of course, what it calls to mind from the theological point of view is Genesis, but it had a specific beginning. All right, I think I understand that. You may add a sentence or two on that's a mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century development scientists. It's now pretty solidly, widely accepted, I think, correct, from your book? Co correct, although there are attempts to circumvent the conclusion. And one of the things I do in the book is to show that even those attempts within theoretical physics to circumvent the beginning themselves end up having uh, implicit uh, theological, or have, have theological implications. Okay. So the universe began, right. which is a thought that's hard to get one's mind around in the first place, my little mind anyway. Why does that suggest a cause beyond the physical or material universe? I mean, Steve, things just happen sometimes. Well, one of the basic principles of rationality is the principle of causality, that all uh, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. This is presupposed in every attempt we make to make sense of the world scientifically or otherwise. And the big discovery of both observational astronomy and astrophysics on the one hand and theoretical physics on the other is that the universe is expanding outward in a roughly spherically symmetric way in the forward direction of time. We first got an inkling of this from the light that was coming from distant galaxies and learning that it was stretched out and looked redder than it should otherwise look where the redder light indicates longer wavelengths as if the objects in the night sky from which the light is issuing are receding. So if the universe is expanding outward in the forward direction of time, then as we back that time scale up in our mind's eye, we back extrapolate, then the matter would be getting closer and closer together. The space would be getting more and more tightly curved because this is the, the contribution from theoretical physics. Einstein's theory of general relativity published in 1915 um, asserted that gravitational force is a consequence of massive bodies curving space around the, the, the massive, those massive bodies. So as a theoretical physicist reflected on this, in particular Stephen Hawking in the 1960s, he realized that as you back that time sequence up, the matter in the energy is getting more and more densely concentrated, causing space to be more and more tightly curved until at some point in the finite past, and this was called his singularity theorem, there is a point where you reach a limiting case where the matter becomes so densely compacted that the space becomes infinitely curved. And at that point, all physical reasoning becomes impossible. Uh, the physicist Paul Davies said beyond that point, you reach an extremity where it's impossible to do any physical reasoning at all. And before which there would be neither matter nor space nor time nor energy. They come into existence at that point. So you can't explain the origin of the universe as the result of a material cause because it's matter and energy themselves that come into existence at that point before which there was no matter to do the causing. So this suggests an event that took place that began to exist, therefore it must have a cause and yet the cause cannot be material. It must transcend the domains of matter, space, time, and energy. All right. I say all right as though I followed absolutely every word <laughs> of that. Oh, that, yes, of course. In investigating the Big Bang, scientists have made a corollary finding. You've alluded to it several times already, but I'm going to quote the book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. We apparently live in a kind of Goldilocks universe where the fundamental forces of physics have just the right strengths. 
the contingent properties of the universe have just the right characteristics. And the initial distribution of matter and energy at the beginning exhibited just the right configuration to make life possible. These facts are so puzzling that physicists have given them a name, the fine tuning problem. Explain, explain that. Well, uh, perhaps a helpful illustration of that is, well, let's talk about that expansion of the universe. First. Yes. The expansion is driven by uh, a number of factors, one of which is uh, the outward anti-gravity pushing force that Einstein called the cosmological constant. If gravity is pulling everything in, then there must be something that has pushed everything out because we don't live in a world where all the matter has collapsed into one place. And Einstein called that the cosmological constant. That co that, that's just one of many uh, finely tuned parameters. It turns out that, that, that for the cosmological constant, for the universe to expand in a way that will be life conducive, the cosmological constant has to be finely tuned to one part in 10 to the 90th power is, is an accepted um, degree of fine tuning, accepted by many physicists. There are varying estimates. But to put that number in, in context, and you, that would be like to, to, to get that degree of fine tuning by chance would be like looking for one elementary particle blindfolded, not just in our universe, but in 10 billion universes our size. It's an exquisite degree of fine tuning, meaning that things have to be just right within very fine tolerances or limits to get a universe that's going to come out right. But there are dozens if, of these if, if that, if that constant, If that constant is too small, the universe collapses on It collapses itself. back on itself. I we get, get that. Crunch. If it's a little bit too big, what happens? We, we get a heat death of the universe where everything dissipates and we don't get stable galaxies or even basic chemistry, okay. in fact. so right. And there are dozens of such constants. There are, there are dozens of such, of such parameters. Some Initial, the initial conditions of matter and energy have to be finely tuned. That's an even more exquisitely finely tuned parameter. Uh, but then the, the, the fundamental forces of physics, uh, gravitation, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, the masses of the elementary particles have to exist within very particular values, not too heavy, not too light. So this is where the Goldilocks concept comes from. Each of these things collectively are within very specific tolerances to allow for the, a life conducive universe. Right. Now, th there's an obvious objection. I say it's obvious because you say in your book that it's obvious. <laughs> I'm not coming up with independent objections here. And to quote the physicist Brandon Carter, quote, what we can expect to observe must be restricted by the conditions necessary for our presence as observers, close quote. If you're a fish in the ocean, you might be startled to learn that four-fifths of the planet is covered with water, that the water has just the right salinity, and so forth. Because you're a fish. And because we're humans, we look at all this and say, wow, isn't that remarkable? To which the answer is what? Well, it is, of course, we live in a universe that has conditions which are consistent with our own existence. But that is not an explanation for how the conditions were set or why the conditions are so exquisitely improbable, overwhelmingly improbable. So the, the, this is called the weak anthropic principle that says essentially we don't need to explain the fine tuning because of course we live in a universe that, is, consist, that, that is consistent with our existence. But um, it is, that is of course uh, uh, obvious that that would be the case. It's, it's, it's necessary, but it's not necessary that those conditions would have been so overwhelmingly improbable. And therefore, it doesn't actually 
provide an explanation for what needs to be explained, which is the, the exquisite fine-tuning of the fine-tuning. Why, why are the fine-tuning parameters so improbable? There's a great philosopher of physics named John Leslie who's come up with a, an illustration to illustrate the fallacy here. He says, imagine that you are uh, part of the resistance. You've been captured by the Nazis. You've been in prison camp. They put you up against the, firing, uh, against the, the wall. You're now facing a, a firing squad of 100 Nazi marksmen and the command is given, ready, aim, fire. There's a hail of bullets and you look down, there's a perfectly inscribed pattern of bullets around your, 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 your body, but none of them have hit you. What do you conclude? He says, well, you don't say, well, of course I live in a universe which is consistent with my own existence. You say, gee, there must've been something going on here that the, the marksman so perfectly missed me. Um, right. And and so when given a choice between design and well it it had to be this way when things are, when when the conditions are so improbable the design hypothesis is the better explanation. All right, we go from inconceivably vast to unimaginably small, the DNA enigma. In 1953, Watson and Crick discover the basic structure of the DNA molecule. The return of the God hypothesis, quote, due in large measure to the discovery of the information-bearing properties of DNA. Information-bearing. Fascinating to me. I think of it as little twisted molecules. Or, and All right, we'll come to this in a moment. Given the discovery of the information-bearing properties of DNA, the materialist understanding of life has begun to unravel. Scientists have become increasingly aware that there is at least one appearance of design in biology that has not been explained by natural selection, the information present in even the simplest living cells, close quote. So why is that such a problem for the materialist view? Well, a um, little bit more on the discovery and then I'll explain the problem. Uh, Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule in 1953. In 1957, 1958, Crick on his own puts forward something called the sequence hypothesis in which he proposes that the chemical subunits called bases or nucleotide bases that run along the interior of the twisting helix are four different amino, amino uh, proteins, right? Oh, uh, amino acids are in the proteins. The nucleotide bases are the constituent parts of the DNA. And these, these nucleotide bases uh, are functioning like alphabetic characters. They are literally providing instructions for arranging the amino acids that build the proteins. So what they end up discovering, and, and uh, Crick's uh, hypothesis is confirmed. It's code. It's code. What we have now, it's not that the nucleotide base, they, their function is not determined by their physical properties, their shapes, their masses. It's determined by their arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention later discovered and now known as the genetic code. And so what we have is a sophisticated information storage, transmission, and processing system at the heart of every single cell. And Bill Gates, our local hero here in Redmond has said that the, the, DNA, uh, uh, the DNA is like a, a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever devised. Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that the DNA contains machine code. Leroy Hood, the biotech pioneer, simply calls DNA chock full of digital code. We have an information an information bearing molecule. What we know from our uniform and repeated experience, the basis of all 
uh, scientific reasoning is that it, whenever we find information, whether it's in a section of software or a paragraph in a book or a hieroglyphic inscription or even information embedded in a radio signal, in, and we trace that information back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. The, pro, the, pro, the software program requires a programmer. The information in DNA, I argue, requires a master programmer. Now, to justify that conclusion, I, as I have to examine the various materialistic attempts that have been made to explain the origin of information. I, do that, I did that first in the book, Signature in the Cell, but I reprise some of those problems with materialistic attempts to explain the origin of information, whether they're based on chance or principles of law or necessity or some combination of the two. But it is universally recognized within original life research that the information problem has not been solved, even as prominent a, an advocate of scientific atheism and neo-Darwinism as Richard Dawkins has acknowledged that, quote, no one knows how life arose from uh, a strictly materialistic evol chemical evolutionary process. Okay. We begin vast, we go very small, and now we go very, very old. The Cambrian, Cambrian or Cambrian? The Cambrian explosion. Either way, it's potato, no, but potato. You're, listen, I'm going to take it the way you pronounce it. I always say Cambrian, but you- you'll Cambrian, find done, yeah. done, yeah. we're done. The return of the God hypothesis, quote, Darwin presented the history of life as gradually unfolding. In this view, novel animal and plant species arose from a series of simpler precursors and intermediate forms over vast stretches of geologic time. But during the Cambrian explosion, beginning about 530 million years ago, most major animals first appear in the fossil record in a geologically abrupt fashion. Although the Cambrian explosion of animals is especially striking, it is far from the only explosion of new living forms. The first winged insects, birds, flowering plants, mammals, and many other groups also appear abruptly in the fossil record, close quote. So explain that. Well, in, in my previous book, Darwin's Doubt, I addressed this question in a full book length treatment, but I addressed two separate mysteries that arise from this. One is the obvious one of the missing ancestral precursors in the fossil record that should be there, but aren't there. Uh, should be there if there was a gradual unfolding of life in, a, in, a, in the manner of a Darwinian tree. Uh, but the deeper mystery that I make much more of is the mystery of, it's essentially it's an engineering problem. How would the evolutionary process build these new and distinct animal forms, given what we now know about the primacy of information in living systems? Uh, if you want to give your computer a new function, we know that you have to provide new code. Same thing turns out to be true now in the biological realm. If you want to build a new form of life from a pre-existing form, or if you want to build the first living cell from non-living chemicals, in both cases, there needs to be an infusion of information. Where does that information come from? That question has not been answered adequately by either chemical evolutionary theories about the origin of life or biological evolutionary theories about the origin of subsequent forms of life and major innovations in the history of life, such as these, these new animal forms that arise in the Cambrian. And as I mentioned in the book and other, other places up and down the rock column as well. All right, this brings us, again, this is something you've already touched on a couple of, in a couple of places, but let's, let's be explicit about it. The question of design itself. You discuss the work of the mathematician and philosopher, William Dembski. To quote you, 
According to Dembski, extremely improbable events, feature one, that also exhibit an independently recognizable pattern, feature two, invariably result from intelligent causes, not chance, close quote. Right. So what's happened in the last uh, 20 years or so is that there has been a development within, Dembski has been at the forefront of this, but others as well, uh, developments in uh, methods of design detection. And we all make design inferences all the time. It's very mm -hmm. common. If you look at the faces on Mount Rushmore or uh, observe a stop sign, or we, we recognize intelligent causes in the echo of the effects they leave behind. And what Dembski began to think about very deeply was, well, what are the features of all such objects that are obviously designed? And the answer to that that had long been given is, well, they're very improbable. But he showed that there are many improbable things that happen all the time that aren't designed. You can flip a, a series of coins or, or you can flip a coin 100 times, you're going to get an improbable outcome. But if you, get a, uh, you flip a coin 100 times and it comes up seven every time, uh, you might infer that the dice were loaded. And so it's, it's, the, it's the combination of an improbable event with a pattern that we recognize or with a set of uh, discernible functional requirements that trigger this awareness of design. And so I give a number of examples in the book. Uh, the, uh, Mount, Mount Rushmore is a great one because you've got the improbable shapes, but that's not alone what triggers the design awareness. It's that there's a pattern that we recognize that matches something we know from independent experience, namely the shape of the human face, indeed the shapes of the specific faces of the presidents. Okay, so to paraphrase that great cosmologist, Bill Clinton, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself, <laughs> roughly. Uh, all right. The universe had a beginning and was finely tuned to, to permit the emergence in a way that permitted the emergence of life. One. Two, DNA demonstrates that even the tiniest, most rudimentary structures possess astounding complexity. Three. The Cam Cambrian explosion shows that at intervals, new forms of life simply burst into existence. And this suggests or requires you, you adjust this some kind of, what are we, I'm trying to avoid using the word God, but we, this suggests well, certain properties, omniscience, omnipotence. What, what, how do you well, end up with God? Let, yeah, let's start with designing intelligence because I, the first two books I wrote were making an argument for intelligent design without attempting to identify the nature of the designer. Um, we know from our uniform and repeated experience that it requires that, that mind is the only known cause of the generation of large amounts of specified information especially when we find it in a digital or alphabetic form as we do in, in, in the molecules that make life possible. So from the discovery of the, the, the functional digital information in living systems, I inferred that a designing intelligence must have played a role in the origin and subsequent uh, development of life. But I didn't attempt to identify the designing agent involved. Many of my readers wanted to know, well, who do you think the designing intelligence is and what can science tell us about that question? And so to address that question, I broadened the range of phenomena under consideration. And instead of looking just at the evidence of design in biology, I also looked at developments in physics and cosmology about the origin and fine tuning of the universe. 
and because one of the one of the proposed uh, identities of the designing intelligence responsible for life is that it was an imminent intelligence within the cosmos. Uh, even Francis Crick and uh, and Richard Dawkins have floated that idea that maybe life was seeded here on Earth because it was so difficult to get life going here. Maybe it was it started someplace else, and that life form evolved and eventually became very intelligent and and and. Uh, seeded some simple cells on planet Earth. Um, I argue in the new book that that's an unsatisfactory explanation for a number of reasons. But one reason that uh, one, one thing that that hypothesis clearly can't explain is the origin of the fine tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe that precede the origin of any possible imminent intelligence within the cosmos. Dawkins, when Dawkins proposed this, he, he suggested that, it, that such a being would have evolved by purely natural processes, but no being within the cosmos can be responsible for the fine tuning of the laws and constants of physics upon which its very origin and evolution depend. And so the fine tuning points not to an imminent intelligence, but requires instead as a condition of its explanation, both an intelligent cause, but one which also lies beyond the boundaries of matter, space, and matter, space, time, and energy, one which is transcendent. And so when you bring in the evidence for the beginning of the universe and for the fine tuning of the universe from the beginning, I think this precludes the idea of an imminent intelligence within the cosmos and points rather to a designing agent which transcends the universe, but then because of the biological evidence is also active in the creation. So we have not a deistic creator, not a space alien, but rather a, 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 a theistic designer that has the attributes that Jews and Christians have always ascribed to God. All right. The biologist Richard Dawkins, the quotation with which we began, quote, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at, no, at bottom no design, close quote. Steve Meyer, if a purposive intelligence had acted periodically during the history of life on Earth, we might well expect to find evidence of episodic bursts of new information in the biosphere, close quote. How, how strong is your argument, Steve? Do you just wanna say, look, let's face it, fellas, the Big Bang, the 20th century has brought major, basic, radical discoveries that are consonant with the Judeo-Christian understanding of God, which is, a, in, in, in this day and age, that would be a very arresting claim by itself. Or do you want to say, these, these discoveries require a mind. And I'm sorry, Dr. Dawkins, but you just haven't been paying attention. You haven't been keeping up with the developments in the 20th century. The um, great physicist Arno Penzias, who won a Nobel Prize for discovering the cosmic background radiation in 1965, which was one of the key pieces of evidence that really provided great support for the Big Bang model and, and uh, sounded the death knell to this, it's the competing steady state model said this. He said that the evidence that we have, and he was speaking of the cosmological evidence in this case, are precisely what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Now contrast that statement with Dawkins's statement. Now I'm not arguing necessarily for a specifically biblical 
God, but I am arguing for, uh, for what you might call basic or classical theism, which would be consistent with a biblical understanding of God. The, but when, so I'm, I'm not merely saying that the evidence is consonant with theism. I'm saying that, nor am I saying that theism is proven by the evidence in a mathematical sense where you would derive certainty. But instead I'm arguing that, that theism provides a better explanation for these three great pieces of evidence that we have about biolog biological, physical, and cosmological origins. And it happens that this type, this standard of evidential support is precisely what can be provided by scientific theories. And scientists are very, if they're astute philosophically, and most of them are, they know that scientific work does not prove conclusions with absolute certainty. We get, we, we provide evidence or reasons for believing conclusions, but we don't provide absolute proof because we always have to be open to new evidence coming down the pike. Um, so we've had this kind of false dichotomy in the discussion of the relationship between science and faith since the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there were a lot of people trying to prove God's existence with deductive certainty. When the Enlightenment philosophers came along and poked holes in those proofs and said, no, they don't really work, then people went, shifted to a, a, um, the other end of the, the, the extreme and embraced something called fideism, faith and faith alone, arguing that there, there's no evidence for faith or no reasons for faith. We just make uh, blind leaps. And what I'm arguing is that there's something in the middle that's still very strong, and that is we may have good reasons to believe in God without being able to achieve that unattainable standard of absolute certain proof. And the the and part of this method of reasoning I use is to show that is to evaluate competing hypotheses by reference to their explanatory power. And and when we look at these three great discoveries, the universe had a beginning, it's been finely tuned from the beginning, and there have been bursts of information into the biosphere since the beginning. Theism provides a better explanation of that ensemble of key facts about our biological and cosmological origins than do the other main competing worldviews or systems of thought, whether that, that be deism or pantheism or materialism, or even this uh, more fanciful pan, uh, panspermia idea, the space alien designer concept. So I ex examine theism and its explanatory power and compare it to that of competing systems and argue that it provides the best explanation, not proof, but the best explanation, the same kind of standard of evidence that we would want to attain for a very good scientific theory. I've been quoting Dawkins. I've been, I've been this through this whole discussion, I've been treading water because I'm in the deep end here. But now let me swim over to the shallow end and stand on my own two feet and just tell you a story. I'm an English major, but I'm a product of the American educational system, public schools in upstate New York. And here's the story I can tell you. <clears throat> It starts with some sort of primordial chemical soup. How it got there, we don't know, but it's there. And this comes into being in one corner of some vast universe. Again, how it got there, we don't know, but we don't care. And then there's some sort of natural event. I seem to recall being told that it was a lightning strike. The Miller-Urey experiment, yes. that, then, yeah. Then, and for some yeah. reason, there's a, there's a lot there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of ammonia in the atmosphere, but there's the lightning strike, and in this primordial chemical soup, there's a life gets started, and it takes the form of a very simple life form. I seem to remember one teacher saying, "Just picture a blob of Jello," and 
that's all you need because the blob of jello subdivides. Now you've got two blobs of jello and they are random mutations and natural selection acts on those random mutations. And billions of years later, here we are. Now you may believe in God if you want to, but he just doesn't come into the story. Is that, I have the feeling that that's, that's the, the that's story the I have in yep. the back of my mind that a lot of people must have roughly that story in the backs of their minds. What's wrong with that? Pro professor Philip Johnson from across the Bay at Berkeley, the law yes. professor who wrote the very influential book, Darwin on Trial in the 1990s, used to tell that story by uh, mode of uh, almost a paraphrase from the, from the, the biblical text, only it was inverted. Instead of in the beginning was the word, it was from eternity past were the particles and the energy. And the particles arranged themselves into more complex chemicals, and the chemicals arranged themselves into the first cell. And the first cell evolved by Darwinian processes to produce more and more complex forms of life. And then one of those forms of life, namely human beings, conceived of the idea of God. And so in this materialistic narrative, you do have God, but God only is a concept in the mind of man. Remember, you're Freud. God didn't create man. Man created the idea of God. Right. So you have this direct inversion of the theistic worldview. The theistic worldview holds that, that mind was primary, that God is a conscious agent who brought the universe into existence and shaped it uh, and designed everything that we see. And, and materialism has the, the opposite sort of uh, narrative. The question is, which of the two narratives better comports with the scientific evidence that we have. And that's why I appreciate the, the, the framing that Dawkins brings to the issue. The, the new atheists are brilliant at framing the key issues. But I think if you look at these three big discoveries, um, they, they definitely support theism. And to underscore that, let me tell you just a quick story. Right. I, I did a debate with one of my uh, friendly debating partners on the opposite side of this issue. I tell his name in the in the book, but I won't. I want to say it here. It's not really important. We did our debate. We went through. We went. He put me through my paces. I put him through his. We were in a in a in a car riding back to the airport in St. St. Louis, and this particular debating partner always starts by telling his deconversion experience. How he was he was raised in a in a religious home. How he rejected his his belief in God as a result of science. And in the car, I asked him, well, what was it specifically about science that caused you to re reject your belief in God? And he said, well, you know, it's just the general success of science, its ability to, you know, to unpack the DNA molecule and discover the Big Bang. And I said, well, wait a minute, friend. Uh, in our debate, you acknowledged to me that you didn't actually have an explanation for the origin of the information in DNA. We theists love the discovery of DNA too, but you haven't explained the crucial thing about it, the origin of the information. He says, well, yeah, that's right. But and, and what about the fine tuning, I said. And he said, well, you know, there's the multiverse. And I said, but do you really believe in all those multiple universes out there that can't be detected? And he said, eh, nah. And I said, well, what about the problem of consciousness? And then he said, okay, 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 stop piling on. You know, so there are these big questions that scientific materialism doesn't answer. The origin and fine tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the origin and nature of consciousness. And I would add things like in philosophy, the reliability of the mind or the origin of objective morality? Why is it that all of us act as though there is an objective standard of morality, even if we deny that there could be any such a standard that would render such a, uh, such a belief uh, plausible or meaningful? So there are a lot of fundamental questions the materialistic worldview has really failed to answer, albeit you know, notwithstanding the great success of science, but science does not actually support materialism. Uh, and that's the argument of the book.
Steve, you quote the astrophysicist Robert Jastrow, quote, science has had extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries, close quote. But what strikes me in that, very witty, sums up a great deal, but he says it ends like a bad dream. Why, why if it offers a better explanation, should theism strike scientists as a bad dream? Or let me put it another way. Why does Steve Meyer, who has written now three carefully reasoned, thoroughly footnoted works of scholarship, why does Steve Meyer get dismissed as some kind of snake handling yokel? And why? There's something going on here that isn't just searching in an honest, good faith manner for the best arguments, isn't well, th there? This is the shift that we were describing in the beginning of the interview, that uh, this wouldn't have seen, see, been seen as a bad dream to Newton, Kepler, and Boyle, uh, that science was revealing the reality of God or was confirming an expectation of a theistic worldview, which is, I think, the gravamen of the Jastro quote. Um, but somewhere in the late 19th century, the idea of science, reason, and non-belief were all equated, such that it was assumed that if you were going to make progress in science, it would be outside of or independent of any kind of theological framework, and that we could explain everything by reference to purely materialistic causes. And when we're talking about the origin of matter itself, clearly materialism breaks down at that point as an explanation. So I think reason has been equated with a materialistic way of thinking. And that's when materialism gets challenged, then for scientists who think of the two things as coextensive or equivalent, there is a sense of cognitive dissonance that, that emerges. And I, I, I think it's, a, it's what I've, essentially what I'm arguing in the book is that it's perfectly legitimate to reframe our understanding of reason and science within a theistic framework because it was very fruitful in the beginning, and it can be fruitful again, not only in our personal lives and thinking about ultimate meaning and purpose, but fruitful for science itself. It was after the belief in God was not a science stopper for Sir Isaac Newton, it was the science starter. Last question, Steve Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Close quote. If you had to reduce to one sentence, all that we know, would that sentence prove scientifically adequate? It's strikingly convergent with what we've discovered from astrophysics and cosmology. Uh, the first three words of the Bible are, after all, in the beginning. And I've even had physicists tell me that, you know, the idea that there was light first and matter second, which is affirmed implicitly in that passage, is what we understand from our standard models of particle physics and uh, our, our, our most cutting edge uh, thinking about the early evolution of the, of the universe from the beginning forward. So uh, it's, it's uh, okay by me, <laughs> okay by a lot it's of okay scientists. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, it, right. and this, this was, the, this was the, the point of the, of the statement by Arno Penzias that uh, 
the discovery of a beginning was what you would expect on that theistic view that has God creating the universe in the beginning. Steve Meyer, author most recently of The Return of the God Hypothesis. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Peter, and for the terrific discussion. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.